You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. He is risen. If you've been around church for some time, then you, people typically say, He is risen indeed. Let's try it one more time. He is risen. He is. That is the good news. I just want to welcome you if you're here on the floor, if you're here in the overflow. Just want to say welcome to you today. I met some people from Texas already. I met five girls from Biola University who drove all the way up here. They're heading up to Portland, heading back down. It's just going to be a good, good day, and God's doing just some neat things here. We just had a great service already, uh, one this morning, and then we're looking forward to this time right now. And what I want you to do is I want you to take out of your program your outline because uh, we're going to walk through some stuff here today that's essential for you to understand. Uh, it was interesting, uh, if you uh, know anything about me, I like taking pictures of landscape, pictures of the sunset, that kind of thing. And my son and I last night were driving down by the river to see if it was going to be a good sunset and if we could get some photos. And we're down by the river and um, we're on the, on the east side of the river right here, Sacramento River in the, kind of the hood area. And this, uh, this flight for life helicopter goes flying over and starts to circle. And we get curious. And, and so we're like, well, let's see what's going on. So we kind of hike back up the levee and get on top on the river road there. And we're looking off to the north. And as we're there, we can see that there are a bunch of like ambulances and just a bunch of lights. So we're like, let's jump in my vehicle and let's go up there and see if we can see what's going on. It looks like it's on the west side of the road. We're on the east road uh, surrounding the river. So we drive up there. And as we get up there, uh, we kind of just pull off to the side and we can look and we can see that the Flight for Life helicopter has now come down and landed on the road. They blocked off all the traffic and, and we can't tell exactly what's happened, right? We know there's some sort of accident and, and all the people are looking down the levee, not, not toward the river, but on the backside, like into the open farmland. So there's been some sort of a crash or a wreck and a car or something's gone down there and they're extricating the person, extracting them from the, the car and they put them on the on the ambulance, um, what do you call that thing? Thank you. And they roll them. Good job. Just make sure you're awake here this morning. I roll them. Uh, they roll them right to the back. They open up the back of the helicopter. They roll them. In fact, I want to show you a picture here uh, that we took just from across. We're across the road, shooting across the river to the other road. And, and it was just amazing. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I don't know exactly what happened. But here's what I know. I was so thankful for first responders. Aren't you? We give it up for the first responders. I mean, we got medical personnel, we got, uh, you know, uh, law enforcement personnel, we have fire uh, people who just do a great job. When, when you're in need, when you're in an emergency, and a first responder shows up, it's just an amazing thing to know that they are there and that they could be available to you, and it's just a kind of a beautiful thing. Well, this morning, I mean, uh, we, I didn't know what totally went on on that road. Uh, my son was on the police scanner trying to figure it out, and it was, it was, we couldn't totally, you know, figure it out what was going on there. Uh, but it's interesting because our, our media is full of shows where people go back and they try to figure out what went on in a crime scene or in a courtroom scene or in a ju judicial process, right? You've seen all these kind of different shows and we get fascinated by those shows because we want justice. We have a heart for justice. That, that, you know, whatever's been made wrong, we want it to be made right. We want justice, except when we're the guilty party, then we want mercy, Right? We don't want justice. Hey, please be lenient, you know, if we're the guilty one, right? But for the most part, we want justice, and we want to be able to see what is going on. And, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look back at the trial of Christ. We're going to ask the questions, who is Jesus? 
Was he just a historical victim of some mob scene who got caught up in a religious movement and got martyred somehow? Or was there actually more than that at stake? Well, here's what I want you to do. Today, I want you to pretend like you're in the courtroom, that you're a juror, that that you've got a front row seat to the trial of Christ. I want you to sit up and I want you to listen up and I want you to pay attention because you've got an essential role in your seat today, that you are a juror, that you want to take careful notes as we walk along this thing and we take a firsthand view to the legal trial that Christ went through before he was crucified. And to understand the Jewish legal system, there's certain things that we need to understand. It's different than ours. The Jewish legal system was made up of not 12 jurors, but actually 70 members who made up what was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was made up of priests and teachers and scribes of the law. So all these 70, imagine that, 70 of them, and there were in the jurors, and, and they uh, was made up of them. And it was far more advanced as a legal system, and actually far more fair legal system in those days than it is our, in our system today. So let me give you some examples. As you're taking notes today, as you're being a good juror, as you're listening up, the first fill in the blank is this, that you needed two witnesses for a capital offense. Now, a capital offense is an offense that deserves death. In order to kill somebody, you didn't need one eyewitness, you needed two eyewitnesses. Typically, in our court system, it would be one eyewitness who could peg that you were there on the scene or whatever, right? But for them, it was two. It required two eyewitnesses uh, that would require a capital offense. Secondly, self-incrimination was not allowed. The burden was on the court to prove it. Now, that's very different, right? You couldn't take a confession. If some person came forward and said, I did it, I take responsibility, it was me, the burden was still on the court to prove that you, in fact, did that. It was very different than our legal system. They couldn't just take a word of a crazy person. They really wanted to say, hey, are they just, you know, is this a crazy person who's taking responsibility for something that they didn't really do, or is it more than that? And last, or third, unanimous verdicts were not permitted. Imagine that for a minute. You've got 70 people in the room. When was the last time that 70 people agreed on anything? (laughs) Right? So 70 of these people, if they said it was a unanimous verdict, they would say, well, this is highly suspect. In fact, they're not allowed because we just don't think that's a picture of reality. So somebody had to disagree. There had to be a split or somebody had to disagree. And last, Jewish law observed a cooling off period of one day between verdict and sentencing. Now, I don't know if you've ever served as a juror. But if you've ever served as a juror and it finally went to deliberation and you got in the little juror panel there in the side room and you're deliberating and when you finally come to that verdict that, that whatever the case you're trying, this person is in fact guilty. It's then, once you've come to that conclusion, you've gone through the whole process and you finally say this person is guilty, it's then that the blood is in the water that the sharks start circling. Because once you've determined the person is guilty, then all your emotions come up, all your, all your you know, intensity comes up of all this deliberation, and now you want to sentence really strong. And so you know, if you don't have a pause, if you don't have a cooling off period, that's when the fines are going to go up or the sentencing is going to go way up. And so the Jewish legal system required a 24-hour cooling off period. Now we want to look back at Jesus. We've got to say, well, how much did Jesus know? Did Jesus actually know what he was getting himself into? 
How much did he know? Well, we got to look at the scriptures. Matthew 16, 21 says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What day? The third day. Right, everyone look at your neighbor and say, third. That's right, third day, third day, that he's going to be raised to life. So Jesus is saying, listen, I'm just telling you guys, I'm going to get killed. And after three days, I'm going to raise to life. Then later on in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus in his own words says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's referencing himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified and on the what day? Third day, he will be raised to life. Now, Jesus gives more information. Here's a little while longer. Not only does he realize he's going to be in one court, but he's going to go from one court, Jewish law, to another court, the Gentiles, the Roman law, and that he's going to be handed over, not just to be killed as it was shared previously, but that he's going to be mocked, that he's going to be flogged, that he's going to be crucified, the manner in which he dies. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. And I don't know about you, but if you knew that that was exactly what was going to happen to you, you probably would head the other way. You'd be like, I'm out of here, right? But Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Now, we got to understand, as we understand some things about Jewish law, we also need to understand Roman law. And here's the beautiful thing. Romans required capital offenses to be tried under Roman law. They were the occupying nation. So in most cases, they would say, hey, Jewish cases, you take care of your own stuff. But if it's going to lead to someone being killed, capital punishment, then it has to leave the Jewish legal system and come up to the Roman legal system. We get the final say. That's how it works. And in Roman law, there was a statute that forbids death for public disruptions. They just understand the nature of a mob scene. They understand the nature that emotions can get really high and a person can get carried off. And part of their control of the land is that, hey, you can't just kill a person in a mob context. They can't, for stirring up a crowd, you cannot be killed for that. There was a stipulation, a statute against it. So that brings us now to the case at hand. Jesus has had the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's gone out to the Mount of Olives, and he's, he's prayed with them and asked them to stay awake and pray. And he's, he's prayed, God, if there's any other way for me to do what I'm about to do, then let that happen. But if not, I'm going to obey what you want me to do. And the chief priests and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, send out their soldiers to go get Jesus. And that's where the story picks up in Matthew 26, beginning with verse 57. It says, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Now, let me just let you know something. Listen, this is the middle of the night. And all 70 of them have assembled. These are not normal courtroom hours. They have assembled in the middle of the night. It's funny that they just happened to be there. No, they had all assembled because they knew they were sending these soldiers out to arrest Jesus, and they had a timeline at hand. They said, listen, if we can get Jesus in here and get him tried and get him killed, we will do so before the Passover. We don't want to taint the Passover. We want it, it to be restricted. We've got to get this done before Passover, this holy festival, starts. So verse 59 the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. 
Now, think about that. There's all these false witnesses are coming forward, and false witness after false witness after false witness, and they can't get any two of them to agree. Like, it just doesn't happen. Like, they can't get any two of them to agree. And then it says, finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So they're basically saying, Jesus said something that was almost like, would sound to them like a terrorist threat, that, that I'm going to destroy this temple that's on the temple mount, and then I'm going to somehow rebuild it in three days. And, and finally, they, they said, well, it sounds like this testimony agrees to this other testimony, but let's look at the second testimony of this false witness. Mark 14, verse 58 says this, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. I don't know what you're going to make it with, but that's what the guy thought he heard, right? Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Well, let's look back and see what did Jesus actually say. These false witnesses are trying to be close, but they're not in the ballpark exactly. John 2.19 shows us what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, and here's a quote, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. See, they thought he was talking about the temple up there on the Temple Mount, Uh, in Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying something that's very interesting. He's saying, you destroyed this temple, talking about his own body. You destroyed. It's not, I'm not doing the destroying. What he actually said was, you destroy it, and I will raise it again in three days. So Matthew chapter 26, verse 62. So then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And you got to realize he has just charged Jesus to make a confession. And you recall in Jewish law, confessions are illegal. So it's not going well with the witnesses hasn't gone very well. So now under oath, he puts Jesus under oath and says, I charge you by the living God, tell us if you are the son of God. It's an attempt to get a confession from him. It's illegal. Jesus in verse 64 says, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus says to them plainly, listen, I'm God. That's how they would have heard this. He's going, you've said these other things. They're not flying. But let me just make it clear to everybody in the room. But let me tell you something. Blasphemy under Jewish law was a charge deserving death. When a person says, I'm God, and they're not, that's blasphemy. And they said, well, we're going to take care of that. We're going to kill that person who would make such a declaration but I want to show you something. If what Jesus said is untrue, it's blasphemy. If, however, what Jesus said is true, it's not blasphemy at all. If he's God, then what he just said is true, isn't it? He tells them plainly, I'm God. Mark 14 carries on the story. It says this in verse 63. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you all think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Wait a minute. They all condemned him? 
all of them. Unanimous verdicts were not allowed. But somehow here they all condemned him as worthy of death. And it's, it's so interesting. He's going, listen, we couldn't get the... He goes, why do we need more witnesses? In other words, uh, well, let's throw out that restriction about witnesses. That wasn't going well for us. We don't need those anymore. And then he says, he comes back to me and says, why do we need more witnesses? He said, you have heard the blasphemy. He makes a judgment based on Jesus' statement. He thinks Jesus is false. But in fact, Jesus' statement is true. And then he goes, what do you all think? And they all jump on board. In fact, all of them, they all condemn him as worthy of death. Right there, they make the judgment and the sentencing all in one. He's sentenced immediately. There's no cooling off period. There's no 24 hours there. In fact, as we read the text and as you understand the story, they were just, there was no cooling off period. They were just getting warmed up. Well, how did they get warmed up? Verse 67 says, Then they spit in his face, and they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? They were just getting warmed up. So far, they've violated four different aspects of their own law. But they realize if we're going to kill this guy, we've got to take him to Roman law because we can't kill anybody. So the case must go to the Romans. Here's the problem. They take the case to the Romans, but the Romans could care less about blasphemy, right? When a human says, I'm God, they're like, big deal. Why get all up in arms about that? They're like, we follow Caesar. Who thinks he's a God? Big deal, right? Blasphemy is like no big deal. They're like, so what? To the Romans, blasphemy is like no big deal. So it's not a big deal at all. So John 18, 28 and following shows this picture the whole Sanhedrin all of them leave and they they carry Jesus off to go before Pilate who is the Roman governor and they get right up to his palace but they're not willing to go in the palace because they're Jews and that's Greek territory that's Gentile territory and and they're not willing to to go in there because to go in that land on that place would ceremoniously defile themselves before the Passover they wanted to eat the Passover so I just got to point out what's going on here. They have just defiled four tenets of their law. And now they're walking there with an appearance on the outside that we want to remain ceremoniously clean. Absolute hypocrisy going on. They're being so careful to appear that they are pure. But in fact, they have just violated their entire law. Well, Pilate asks them when they bring him, Pilate asks, well, what charges? And they say something that is so interesting to me. They say this, quote, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. He asked for what charges. But he, they, I mean, imagine saying that. A police officer comes with a, the convict or whatever comes, you know, with this person before the judge and just like, what are the charges against him? He say, hey, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. Like, how would that fly in the face of a judge, right? Be like, you're ridiculous. You don't even understand law. It's ridiculous. But that's what they say. So Pilate sees how ridiculous it is. He says, take him away. Judge him by your own law. I don't know why you're troubling me, right? And then they say this phrase. They say, but we have no right to execute anyone. Oh, there it is. There it is. And as of this point forward, Pilate, as we look at this story, will try to unload this situation five different times. 
He tried to get rid of it five different ways. So again, he asked them, well, what charges have you found? And Luke 23 verse 2 says this, and they began to accuse him saying, we have found this man to be subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. So now they use an interesting phrase there, and I want you to catch it. They say, we have found. Found is a legal term. Found means that in the course of their trial, they have come to a judgment, and they have all judged that he is guilty. But they have done it because they have found the evidence needed to proclaim him Found. So when they're saying, listen, we've already tried him and we found, that's a very legal term. But listen to what they say they found. That he was misleading our nation, forbidding paying taxes, and saying he is the Christ, a king. Okay, let's look back. Remember we look back? Did they find any of those things at all? That's not what they talked about a bit. They talked about blasphemy. But they know that blasphemy won't fly with the Romans. So they come before, G, come before Pilate and they accuse Jesus of things, saying, we have already ruled on these things. We found these things, but in fact, there were no witnesses. In fact, they perverted their entire law. We found him. So Pilate interviews Jesus. Says, all right, you guys stay up there. Takes him inside. Interviews Jesus. And in the course of their dialogue, this happened. In John 18, verse 37, Pilate says to Jesus, Oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on side of the truth listens to me. And then Pilate says this famous statement. He says, What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find, he's making a ruling, a judgment, right? I find no basement, basis for a charge against him. So then he's ruled. They said they've ruled, but they're not done. They're going to appeal. And so they say, well, listen, hey, in Luke 23, 5, we find that they say, he stirs up the people. Listen, from, from Galilee all the way down here to Judea, he stirs up the people. And Pilate hears them and goes, Galilee? Well, Galilee is not my jurisdiction. This is perfect. We'll send him to Herod. That's Herod's jurisdiction. We'll send him off to Herod. And here's the beautiful thing. Herod's in town right now. So they pack up Jesus and they send him back, and Pilate thinks, this is great, I'm done with it, right? Well, Herod is a really eccentric character as we understand him in history. And he's all excited that Jesus is going to come to him because he's hoping that Jesus will do a miracle in his presence. That's all he cares about. Well, Jesus comes before him, and we find that in Luke 23, 9, that Jesus says nothing to Herod. Total downer for Herod. He didn't say a word. And so what he does, he sends them back to Pilate. Now, I need to let you understand something. When a governor sends someone back to another governor, that's a sign of an acquittal. Because if he was found guilty of doing something in his jurisdiction, he would have taken care of it right there, wouldn't he? He would have tried him and sentenced him at that moment. But Herod sending Jesus back to Pilate is the sign that Jesus has been found not guilty again. So he gets back. And in Luke 23, verses 14 through 16, we find that, that Pilate again comes to the Jewish people and he says, listen, I found no guilt. Therefore, I'll punish and release him. 
And this is his fourth attempt to get rid of it. Trying to get rid of it one more time. So he says, listen, you want him killed. I find, I'm legally saying, here's my position, my statement. Here's my judgment. I find that there's no guilt there. Uh, Let's meet halfway. We'll beat him up. We'll beat him up, and then we'll just give him back to you, and then that maybe that'll satisfy you, right? He's hoping, like, that's it. I'll just, I'll be done with it. He throws them a bone. After they beat him, they come back, and Pilate once again says, I find no guilt in him in John 19. So Jesus is, again, legally stated and found not guilty. But then Jesus speaks to Pilate the reply which would ensure his ultimate sacrifice. Look with me at John 19, verse 11. Jesus answered Pilate, You have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go... You are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar, right? They're saying, hey, if you release this man, you, Pilate, are a traitor to the king, to Caesar. Now, I got to let you understand something. Pilate is no pacifist. Pilate, in fact, is such an oppressive ruler that he eventually gets recalled back to Rome because he's so bloody and brutal in his leadership. He has no problem killing people. He has no problem having a person whipped or beaten or flogged. He has no problem with that. But time and again, he is trying to rid himself of this situation. He legally finds no ground by which to act. And so in Matthew 27, we see the fifth attempt of Pilate to get rid of this matter. It says that he knew they brought Jesus to him because he knew their envy. How many times have people out of envy tried to kill off Jesus? He knew their envy. Matthew 27, verse 19. He's now going to sentence. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So here, Pilate is now going to sit down. He's going to proclaim sentencing on Jesus after finding him not guilty over five times. He's going to sit down and say, his, another voice that he would listen to, his wife says, don't have anything to do. And she makes a proclamation with this innocent man. Pilate's going, I know, I found him innocent too, right? She wasn't even here for all this stuff, but she suffered in a dream. So Pilate comes up with an ingenious plan. He says, listen, we got this guy named Barabbas, and we have already found him. We have found this guy guilty of murder and guilty of being a thief. He's horrible. He's treacherous. And so he he says, listen, I'll I'll just offer up. Who do you guys want back? Do you want Barabbas, this horrible guy, or will you take Jesus? And he's thinking, obviously, you're going to take Jesus. I found him not guilty five times, right? He offers them Barabbas, and they accept Barabbas. And Pilate is shocked He he says, well, then what shall I do with Jesus? Four times I have ruled that he is not guilty. And they shouted, crucify him. And a riot begins to start. And they get all, the mob gets all wound up. and, And as you remember, Pilate then washes his hands. He actually takes a basin of water and says, I'm going to publicly demonstrate what I think of all this. And he washes his hands. 
and against Roman law, Pilate condemned Jesus to death illegally because of the statute that forbid death for public disruptions. He gave in to the mob. And at this moment, I want you to picture it, jurors in the room for just a minute, I want you to picture this for just a moment, that at this moment, two enlightened judicial systems were grossly abused to allow this to happen. You say, well, how did it go forward? Why didn't Jesus defend himself? Well, number six on your outline says, Jesus could have stopped the proceedings at any time, but he was willing to die for our sin. You say, wait, how does that work? Jesus is God in heaven. He says, you have sinned, you have a sin problem, and nothing can wash away your sin. Nothing can do it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to become flesh in the person of Christ. He's going to live a perfect life, and then he is going to take upon himself the guilt that belongs to you, the guilt that belongs to me. He's going to take God's righteous wrath, his punishment against sin that should have been ours, but he says, I who am innocent will take it. There's no other way to satisfy the holy, righteous judgment of God against sin. He says, I'll take it upon myself. Number seven, Jesus demonstrates peace instead of decrying our rights. He shows that peace is not dependent on circumstances. How often is your peace dependent on your circumstances, right? Things are good, you feel like it's good. Things are bad, you're just down, you're all deflated, right? But what Jesus is showing us is whether it's a fair trial or an unfair trial, that peace can be available. He's just showing that in this situation, is it horrible to have to go through? Yes, but he's showing the peace of God available to you and to me. So let me ask, in your impossible situation, in your biggest trial, in your biggest trouble, in your largest hurt, I want you to know today that you can have peace through Christ. Number eight, that kind of peace is available to you and me through a relationship with Jesus. Not through religiosity, not through church attendance, it's through a relationship with Jesus. And when you have a relationship with Jesus, you gather with other people who have a relationship with Jesus because you want to give him praise and honor and worship him, and that's the church. It's sinners who are saved, who have come together in a place, not to say we're perfect, we're not. What we're going to do is we come together in this place and we say, Jesus paid it all. And that's what we do. That's the church. Well, as you know, Jesus gets crucified. So he's taken away from that point. He is, he is brutally tortured. He is crucified on a cross, and he dies, and he is buried. And then a very interesting thing happens after he's killed in Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, so the day after Jesus was crucified, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after how many days? Three days, I will rise again. So let me just time out right there. So all of a sudden, their memory becomes crystal clear. Did you remember this? Like, remember, we didn't understand that thing about the temple and then raising again three days, and we thought that was black. But we do remember he said, he did say, by the way, it suddenly came to us that after three days, he said he was going to rise again. We're a little guilty. We're a little worried that it might happen. 
Verse 65, take a guard, Pilate answered, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And you got to understand what happens here. They would, it's a stand-up tomb that you could walk in and then you'd, you would put the body in different caverns off the side of the tomb and it was a brand new tomb. Nobody had ever used it. And, and they'd roll this massive stone in front of it that take many people to roll. And at the top, what they would do is they would take all this wax and they would put a, a seal on it with Pilate's authority, his insignia, in that seal, saying, under Roman authority, this is not to be opened. And then they posted a guard, and these were elite Roman soldiers, elite fighting men, usually about 20, but it could have been as many as 50 elite mercenary-type soldiers. These guys are well-trained. They faced everything. And then, on the third day, Matthew 28, verse 1 says this, After the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to look at the tomb, and there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook, and they became like dead men. Now remember, these are elite fighting men. They have faced everything. They've conquered most of the known world at that time. They faced it all. But in the presence of 50 to 1, they lay on the ground sucking their thumbs and shaking because they realize that this is no human in front of them. This is the power of Almighty God. Verse 5, then the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. By the way, it seems like they weren't too afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said, and they came to him, and they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. He is risen. Isn't he? That's good news. (laughs) Jurors, listen up. On the edge of your seat, listen up. Without a single exception, every cardinal rule of Jewish law was violated in the trial of Christ before the Sanhedrin. It was illegal in all respects. Even the charge of blasphemy was invalid because Jesus is God. The entire incident clearly shows that the sinless Son of God willingly submitted to an illegal trial on invalid charges for one reason only. He loved us and was willing to pay the penalty for our sin, which we deserved. He did this in order that each person who accepts his sacrifice and receives his offer of salvation through faith can be saved. Listen, offer through salvation, through faith can be saved. Faith is not something you have, like I got faith, I believe in something religious. No, faith is something you give. And what happened is these women gave faith to the resurrected Lord. The disciples who were afraid and hiding gave faith to the Lord. And from that day forward, they boldly proclaimed the deity of Christ. 
until many of them were actually martyred too, and it was the launch of the church as we know it. Listen, someday you and I will stand a fair trial before God where we will be asked, listen, did you believe in Jesus? Did you in this life, did you follow Jesus? Did you put your faith in his sacrifice on the cross, what he did? How will you answer? See, some of us in our minds were devising a a human-made plan to try to get around God's perfect judicial system. But God's always three steps ahead of us. He's perfect, it's just, it's holy. And he knows that our sin deserves not, not grace, our sin deserves punishment. And he's saying, I made a plan for that to be satisfied. What did you do with the plan? He's saying, listen, I sent the first responder to you. His name is Jesus. I made a way. He's the perfect first responder because the day comes when you and I will breathe no more. And let me tell you, no fire department person, no police officer, no medical personnel will be able to revive you. And the question is on that day when you stand in the courtroom of Almighty God is what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the perfect first responder I sent to rescue you from your sin problem? Today, his free gift of salvation is for you. The proof of the resurrection is, listen, a demonstration of his love for you and the power to back it up, giving proof that when you and I are not able to be revived, that we will have life everlasting with him if we give our faith to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm asking you to do that only for this reason. I just want you to be undistracted. I want you just for a moment to ask yourself, have I put my faith in Christ and what he did on that cross? Have I asked him to forgive me of my sins? Have I invited him to be the Lord of my life that I would have a relationship with the living God? And if today just that thing you're feeling in your heart is telling you this is right, this is what you need to do, that's God's Holy Spirit just drawing you into a love relationship with him. And if that's something you want today to be forgiven of your sins, to stand righteous before God, then you introduce yourself to him by praying a prayer. A prayer is just talking to God. And so you just pray a prayer right where you're seated after me. You just pray something like this. You can repeat it real silent. You can uh, just say it in your heart. God hears you. But this is a holy moment, and I want you to take it so seriously. If that's you today, you pray this. Jesus, today I say yes to you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you were buried in the ground and that you rose to new life and that you are God. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. I ask you, God, would you make me a new creation on the inside? Because today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.